Welcome back to Russian Roulette, a podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Heather Conley. In this episode of Russian Roulette, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Mike Green, Senior Vice President for Asia and Japan Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, as well as Director of Asian Studies at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Mike was part of a U.S.-Japan-Russia Track 2 Trilateral Conference that took place last December, where we discussed a variety of important issues for all three countries, including regional and geopolitical dynamics, missile defense and arms control, strategic stability in the Asia-Pacific region, as well as the Arctic. It was a dynamic conversation that certainly informed today's episode. So in this episode, we discuss that trilateral conversation, the implications of the so-called quad or the quadrilateral security dialogue, and what that means for closer cooperation between Russia and China. We also look forward to thinking more clearly about how Russia sees its role in the Indo-Pacific and some of the specific challenges that the United States will face. Let's get started. Mike, it is so great having you back on the Russian Roulette podcast. Thank you so much. And this conversation really stems around a trilateral discussion, a series of conversations we had with the Japanese Institute for International Affairs, JIIA, and Russia's IMEMO, uh, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region. And I thought it was uh, a rich conversation, a really interesting conversation. Of course, it came in the backdrop of of the pandemic, uh, the U.S. election. Uh, seeing China's assertiveness uh, in a variety of areas. And so the three think tanks with their experts uh, over Zoom and across many time zones uh, started to think about China's assertiveness. And I want to start there and sort of get your impressions from that trilateral discussion, how you thought both our Russian experts were thinking about China And then uh, really maybe putting on the second hat, sort of how our Japanese colleagues uh, were thinking about China's assertiveness in the region and understanding their own complex relationship with Russia. Well, thanks, Heather. And it really was interesting. And for me, a little Rip Van Winkle-like, because I was involved in the very first version of this trilateral when I was a PhD student at SAIS. This IMEMO, JIIA uh, trilateral used to be done at Johns Hopkins SAIS, where we both went. And at the time, I was a PhD student and a note taker, and that was in the early to mid-90s. And in those days, of course, it was Boris Yeltsin, the Russia relationship was full of possibility. One reason we did the trilat was because uh, it was the Japanese who were skeptical about Russia and the Russia card. Bill Clinton wanted to bring Russia into APEC, the major economic uh, dialogue in Asia. The Japanese were unhappy because their Cold War wasn't over. The Russians were still occupying the Northern Territories. And it was a very different dynamic. Let's just put it that way. The Japanese were more skeptical than the Americans about what we could do with Russia and the Pacific. And the Russians were full of hope and possibility. Um, This one was interesting, but I would not describe it as hopeful by any of the three parties. There was a little bit of a pall of, if not despair, sort of resignation about the nature of the relationship, I thought. For the Russians, I thought had no big ideas on strategic issues. They were really very interesting and focused on technical issues related to arms control and missile deployments, 
the more technical the discussion, the more productive. But on big questions of alignment and norms, there was just, I found little traction. Our Japanese friends from uh, JIIA, the think tank and foreign ministry, they're coming out of a bit of a hangover with Russia. You know, Abe, the old Nixon goes to China. Abe was on the right, so he was the one who could make a deal with Putin on the Northern Territories. They hoped nothing happened. It went nowhere. So I think our Japanese friends are also in a state of resignation about what can be done with Russia. But I think they're also being very strategic about the long-term importance of doing whatever we can to engage Russia in Asia, where our interests align more than they do in Europe, and where we might might maybe possibly slow down this Sino-Russian alignment we're seeing. Some of the conversation they found the, the most interesting, from, particularly from our Russian colleagues, was how they were looking at uh, the U.S. Chinese dynamic here. And in some ways, you know, as as spectators, as observers uh, to that. Uh, and, and again, part of the conversation was thinking about the region over the next decade. And, and their sense was that the U.S. will continue to cast China as this uh, very looming military and ideological threat, in addition to being an economic competitor, and that that they thought that China would try to leverage greater cooperation with Russia, but avoiding any type of formal commitment. Uh, And so it would be a very delicate dance. And I found that to be very interesting in their own perception of, but as I said, their, their sort of diminished role. What did you get a sense from sort of the Russian perspective of this U.S.-China dynamic, where they're going to side more with China, but they're not really in this triangle, in the strategic triangle. In earlier iterations of this of this trilateral, Heather, that occurred at CSIS, I don't know, four or five years ago, whenever we last did it, because there was a long pause because of the troubled U.S.-Russia relationship. In earlier iterations, some of the Russian participants, particularly those associated with the Far East, you know, would express concern about China and would make the case for stronger relations with Japan and Korea, if not the US. Didn't hear much of that this time. There was a little bit of, when I said resignation, maybe that was part of it too. Resignation that there will be very tough US-China relations, but also that Russia's ability to shape the Far East may be diminishing, but no one on the Russian side really had big ideas. I I got a ground zero version of this Sino-Russian relationship the summer before COVID 2019. I spent in Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. And met with the national security advisor, went fishing with the chief of staff to the president and hung out with the defense minister. And they were very worried because they live and breathe when there is a balanced Russia-China relationship. And they were very worried about uh, Russia's diminished role and were encouraging me to encourage the U.S. to do more to engage Russia. And I explained how hard that is for us. So I guess that's a reason to be doing these trilats and to be engaging Russia on Asia. And you know, it is not in our interests for the Russian foreign policy in Asia to be basically a farm team for China. That's not in our interests. I'm not sure how much we can shape it, but it's worth trying as, as we did in our own small way. No, absolutely. And, and what I want to talk about a little bit, part of the conversation drifted towards the, the reorganization, if you will, uh, in the Indo-Pacific, and that's certainly around the Quad. And so our Russian colleagues, quite frankly, they view that the Quad will fail, certainly will fail in turning into sort of a, an equivalent to an Asia NATO. But it felt that it just it was not going to be successful in part uh, because of India's uh, domestic uh, political preferences. 
Um, so uh, we have spent some time and you and I will have a forthcoming uh, commentary on sort of looking at how the quad, the four countries of Japan, uh, Australia, India, and, and the U.S., the summit that just was held virtually with President Biden, how the quad will be forming perhaps one block and then Russia and China already interacting quite closely in the region, you know, the fear of forming those two blocks. So I love your thoughts on the dynamic of the quad, the, the like-minded countries coming together to push it back against Chinese aggressiveness. But at the same time, we don't want to push Russia and China together any more than they already have sort of come together. Our Russian friends in that trilateral and Chinese with whom I was interacting, scholars and government officials, completely misunderstood the dynamics among the maritime democracies in Asia, as did Chinese um, scholars and officials I've been talking with over the last year. They were surprised, strategically surprised by how big and how significant and successful Joe Biden's quad summit was. It wasn't just that it was the first summit. The deliverables were massive, a billion doses of vaccine from the four countries for Southeast Asia, cooperation on rare earth uh, metals, and importantly, the growing interest of other countries, Britain, France, potentially Korea, New Zealand, Canada, in participating in the Quad. That was a Hail Mary pass from the 20-yard line that went 60 yards and into the end zone. It was a real surprise for Russia and China, real surprise. And they did not understand the degree to which China's military pressure against all the countries, massive commercial uh, embargo against Australia, huge increase in the op-tempo by the PLA against Japan. Russia and China failed to understand how much counterbalancing they were causing and how much the Biden administration was going to continue the Trump administration's competition policy, but with the piece that was missing, uh, which was strengthening allies and partners. So you can see how upset the Russians and Chinese were when there was this flurry of threats and new alignments. So, you know, Lavrov called it devious, you know, <laughs> this quad. He rushed, as did his Chinese counterparts, uh, Wang Yi and Yang Jiechi, to have strong uh, meetings and agreements with Iran and North Korea and Myanmar. Not exactly winning team, but, um, but, but countries that were willing to quickly meet with them to signal back that they would counterbalance the quad. Now, some people may look at this and say, oh, my God, we've created a Cold War. But I think kudos to the Biden administration in Japan and Australia and India. The Chinese, and I suppose the Russians, but you know better, but the Chinese clearly thought the U.S. was entering secular decline, would be unable to align with partners, was isolated. Um, there was a hubris uh, in attitude, but also in military deployments and wolf warrior diplomacy coming out of Beijing. And the Biden team knew they had to reset the playing field. And they did. And so, you know, we can worry about Sino-Russian alignment and two blocks later, but we had to reset their expectations. And we clearly did, in my view. You know, one of our uh, Japanese colleagues during the dialogue had sort of pushed back against some of the Russian view, the quad's not going to be successful. It's going to force China into sort of that counter position that we just discussed. Uh, and our Japanese colleagues are very quick to say, look, the U.S. has been engaged in the region bilaterally, trilaterally, a lot of different multilateral mechanisms. But it's true. Now, this was, again, last fall. It was before the summit. There is some doubt about the U.S. Uh, persistence in its policy and its alliance structure. And I now I'm speaking with the European, my European hat on. You know, our allies got pretty bruised and battered last four years. 
They're glad for the four-year respite, but they aren't completely convinced that we won't revert back to that form in another four years. And so, how, you know, maybe just turning more to the, the Japanese dimension of this as a vocal participant in the Quad, you mentioned former Prime Minister Abe, you know, doing an enormous amount of global diplomacy with the European Union, with the U.S. to try to create this like-minded community to help counter this. We're the Japanese now under Prime Minister Suga, who will be coming for the first, right, in-person meeting uh, with President Biden. How are the Japanese understanding all of this right now? And particularly now with their own sort of how do you keep Russia and China from forming a more closer union? Well, I would I would argue, and in a forthcoming book, I do argue that Japan under Abe, who came to power in late 2012, is the first Western, if you will, Western democracy to settle on a strategy for competing with China that relies on external balancing and partnerships and rulemaking, but not containment, not complete decoupling. China and Japan still have an important economic relationship. And I think that the Europeans are still struggling to find that balance. The United States, particularly on the Obama administration, uh, has gone back and forth on how to approach China. The Obama administration opened up pitching strategic reassurance and focusing on bilateral relations with China as the way to avoid conflict. Then as Xi Jinping and the Chinese side started militarizing the South China Sea and increasing economic embargoes, we had the pivot and the rebalance and then swinging back to uh, under John Kerry, no, no, we want a new model of great power relations. It really was wildly inconsistent, frankly, because there were two different views in the Obama administration about whether we're competing or whether we're trying to reassure and stabilize and reach some kind of concert of power with China. And in that period, Japan under Abe, but with strong headwinds uh, or tailwinds, I should say, from leaders before him, consolidated a new grand strategy. Um, Japan's strategy after the war was called the Yoshida Doctrine, pretty minimalist on security and diplomacy, emphasize economic growth. The Abe Doctrine, if you will, most Japanese scholars and politicians agree, is here to stay, regardless of who is prime minister. It's strong US-Japan alliance, reach out to Europe, build alignment among democracies, rulemaking, invest in Asia, infrastructure, capacity building, but don't try to contain China and collapse the Chinese Communist Party. We still have to cooperate with them. That's the sweet spot. That's pretty much where Biden has ended up. He's even using the same language, free and open Indo-Pacific, the Quad, that Abe uh, started. And my sense is that's where the Europeans are heading too. The British, the the Dutch, and I forgot who else, the French, have an Indo-Pacific strategy. The word Indo-Pacific is very, very deliberate. We actually surveyed that uh, at CSIS and found that Americans, but especially Australians, Japanese, Indians like the word Indo-Pacific. Chinese like the word Asia or East Asia. It's kind of like if you're an Atlanticist, if you use the word Indo-Pacific, you are a maritime, you know, allies thinker. And the fact that Britain, France, and Holland are all using that, that parts of ASEAN now are using Indo-Pacific, actually ASEAN as a whole, it kind of shows that intellectually Japan has hit on something here. And it's uh, broadening partnerships to do with China. But you got to do it not the way Trump did it, by saying we're going to let the Chinese Communist Party collapse, but by pushing back and writing rules and so forth. So I think it's a, it's a big success. Suga-san is not as politically powerful as Abe. You know, he uh, hopefully will pick up his political support with this summit in Washington in a little while. But we've had periods throughout Japanese history where a strong prime minister like Abe Uh, is followed by a string of weak prime ministers. It's kind of the pattern. And hopefully we'll avoid that because the trajectory won't change. The strategy is there, but implementation matters. 
And, uh, you know, Biden's banking on Suga making it. That's why I invited him as the first leader to Washington. If I remember correctly, Prime Minister Abe was the first leader to be invited to mar Largo and to see President Trump. There was also a, a, a very strong, I mean, I said the tactics are not, but the bipartisanship of, you know, Japan really being a, a central pillar of uh, thinking about our our global challenges, absolutely, uh, absolutely vital. Another question that came up in our trilateral conversation, this is, you're right, sort of this arms control, but also non-proliferation missile defense conversation was North Korea. And our Russian colleagues were quite pessimistic that there would be any change uh, to the status of North Korea or U.S. policy, unless um, they were giving Jong-un a big hug, as, as President Trump had done. But the situation wouldn't improve. In fact, that the Russian colleagues thought that we just have to accept North Korea as a uh, as a nuclear status power and just resolve ourselves to, to that. How do you think the Russians now think about North Korea any differently than they've done? They were part of the you know diplomatic process and they violated sanctions. And now I'm not even sure if I understand if there is still a framework diplomatic process that. Uh, Russian government could, could plug into, or or where are we right now with North Korea? I actually wrote the memo for President Bush with other colleagues setting up the six-party talks and participated in them. And we never knew where the Russians were going to come out. It was, it was always like Russian roulette. You'd spin and you just never knew. Sometimes uh, the Russians were incredibly helpful when we were talking about technical issues of verification or you know, uh, ideas about establishing an East Asia um, multilateral confidence building forum out of the six-party talk. So when we talked about what we would do with this um, disposed of nuclear weapons, because Russia was the only country in the six-party talks that had experience other than the U.S. disposing of nuclear weapons under an arms control agreement. So sometimes they'd be very helpful. And it seemed to me that the Russians were most helpful when it was the diplomats who were trained in Japanese and Korean but sometimes they'd be incredibly unhelpful. And as you said, violating sanctions on North Korea, you know, demanding that the US, Japan and South Korea not coordinate positions. In my experience, those were the Russians who either had a background dealing with NATO or sometimes China. So we started figuring out, we should figure out the career of the lead negotiator at any given point. And it really does suggest to me that when it comes to the Far East, to Asia, Russia has a very split personality. There's no doubt that Russia jealously guards its nuclear weapon status and does not want other members of the club. And in that sense, they're on side with us, sometimes even more than the Chinese in dealing with North Korea. But there's also no doubt that they like disruption, especially of U.S. alliances. So it really is unpredictable. They do respond to strengthening of U.S., Japan, Korea trilateral defense. They do respond to the Quad. Um, I think if we want them to be serious in using what leverage they have against North Korea, the way to get it is to show them the consequences of North Korean nuclear proliferation, which is these alliances, which are bilateral in Asia, are going to start looking more like NATO. If you, Russia, and you, China, don't do something about your good friend in Pyongyang, kind of a game of chicken. But I do think that over the next decade, as hard as things will be with Putin, uh, we may find North Korea is one area where we might get a little bit of traction where at least there's a prospect we're not working at cross purposes with Moscow. It ought to be on the list of things we talk about as we did in our in our trilateral. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and what we find our, our Russian colleagues responding to so clearly is, is the U.S. is putting more hardware in Asia, uh, Japan, more capabilities. And that starts disturbing their own vision of stability, uh, strategic stability and their own capabilities. Although I think there was one uh, one colleague in the dialogue who just felt that there was such a diminished presence of Russia in the Indo-Pacific militarily. Although they've been attempted to re-enliven their partnerships with Vietnam, I mean, they're, they're trying to re-establish themselves through their economic relationships, of course, as well as um, some of their security partnerships. But it's still a, quite a diminished role than it was, obviously, during, during the Cold War. How do the Japanese manage then the tensions that come from the Russians and putting a lot of pressure on the region to prevent U.S. from deploying missile defense capabilities? Over the past few years, Russia's operational tempo, military operational tempo in the Far East has gone up considerably. The Japanese Defense Ministry says they are doing about as many scrambles to intercept Russian fighters and bombers as they did in the 80s. That's a lot. Um, And the Russians are also, as you know, doing more uh, joint and combined military exercises with the Chinese, including the first bomber exercises in their history, actually. On the one hand, Russians are are messing with the Japanese. These poor air self-defense force pilots are exhausted because they're scrambling against, you know, Russian planes on Monday and PLA on Tuesday. And I personally think that there's a lot more coordination of this between Moscow and Beijing than we see on the surface because they're trying to stretch our forces to the north of the Japanese archipelago, making it harder to deal with the Chinese in the south. It certainly serves both their interests, even if it isn't coordinated. So the Russians are creating a lot of problems for Japan. And the Japanese have offered quite expansive investment and assistance and infrastructure financing for the Russian Far East against, frankly, the advice of a lot of Japanese CEOs who are skeptical the Russians will keep to their contracts because their experience is not good. Um, And the Russians haven't taken them up on it. They've sort of pocketed the announcements and done nothing to make it possible. So I think there's frustration in Japan, but ultimately when you're in Japan's position, and you see, you know, when just before Abe came to power, uh, a little before that, Japan was the second largest economy in the world. China is now the second largest economy in the world and several times larger than Japan already. So when you're looking at that kind of power differential and you're in Tokyo, you don't throw away any cards. And I think as frustrating as the Russia card is, they still see it as a long-term play. And I think, frankly, would like us, as with the Indians in the quad, to be a little more accommodating in Moscow. Because India, of course, has its own historic relationship with Russia, mostly around arms sales, but it's part of India's strategic independence to have that relationship. It's interesting, Lavrov threatened that the Quad would hurt it. I don't think that'll work in Delhi. I really don't. But we do have to be uh, aware of the Indian, especially Indian, and to some extent Japanese desire that we not totally box Moscow in a corner, which is tough for the U.S. because of what Russia is doing to us in our domestic politics, right? It's not easy. Right. Well, and I think this is this gets, Mike, actually to the heart of, of a forthcoming commentary that talks about, you know, as difficult it is as it is because of Russian behavior globally. Uh, and you, know, you, you talk about the scrambles. Well, you know, the last 10 days we have just scrambled like you wouldn't believe uh, in UCOM for Russian uh, air sorties, as well as, you know, new potential buildup on the Ukrainian border. So, I mean, it is a constant, you know, monitoring of this. But, you know, how do you give Russia some space to find some opportunities in interacting with members of the Quad, while at the same time trying to not push Russia and China together more clearly? 
And, and so our piece sort of lays out some ideas of how to keep that maneuverability, uh, which has been always a tradition of Russian diplomacy, keeping all options on the table, all sides, because that gives you more flexibility. But it seems to me this, this short-term need by both Moscow and Beijing to show its difference, its assertiveness against uh, U.S.-led allies and engagement, that that's almost trumping their own, what would seem to me, strategic need for that space, that maneuverability. Because as one Russian colleague shared with me, you know, the closer that Russia gets with China, it's really going to cause problems for their bilateral relationship with India, something they do price, mm-hmm. as, as does Delhi. And so you have to be able to have that flexibility. I mean, I'd put you sort of on a spot a little bit, but has Delhi been, um, how have they seen this juggle as well? On the one hand, strong reaction against Chinese aggressiveness towards India, yet also trying to keep space as well. How is Delhi managing sort of quad and the Sino-Russian block? Well, I think um, it's pretty clear from the quad and that summit was made possible because Joe Biden wanted to do it. It wasn't clear the Biden administration would embrace uh, what is essentially Japan's strategy for the Quad and free and open Indo-Pacific. And thanks to Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken, and our friend Kirk Campbell, uh, and Biden's own instincts, politically and strategically, they embraced it. But the other piece that was absolutely critical, because Australia and Japan were always ready for the Quad under their current leadership, the other piece was India. And the Indians needed to impose a strategic cost on China, uh, geopolitical costs on China, and demonstrate that China was not uh, the hegemonic power in Asia, that these maritime democracies were going to be providing much more public goods for Southeast Asia, much more maritime security. And what I think was so shocking for Moscow and explains Lavrov's kind of desperate charge that this was devious, what was really shocking for Moscow is that was much more important than the relationship with Russia. I mean, Russia's threat to India is, to me, revealing because it shows you how much the Russians were shocked at how little they actually matter to India. So right now, Russia and China are um, frenetically proposing a new form of global governance, new currencies, um, reducing dependence on the dollar to avoid the impact of U.S. sanctions. But they're doing this in a huddle of countries that includes Russia, China, sometimes South Africa, but basically the only really enthusiastic partners are North Korea, Iran, and Myanmar. That's not exactly, if you were playing pickup football, the team you would choose for your huddle. So I think, and and by the way, I think the more they push this alternative currency, this governance with norm in the UN and elsewhere with non-interference internal affairs, no, no sanctions, no human rights criticism, as long as they attack democracy, they're just going to isolate themselves even more in that huddle. This is not going to cause, you tell me, but this is not going to cause Europe or India or Japan or Canada to say, oh gosh, maybe the Russians and Chinese are right. Maybe democracy is not that important to us. Maybe global governance does have to uphold non-interference and we should not talk about human rights. That is not where the political or strategic trend lines are for any of the OECD countries, I think, except a couple in Eastern Europe, maybe. So I don't think that this is going to work for Moscow and Beijing. And I don't think we should start a strategy by saying our number one goal is to avoid Sino-Russian alignment because it's happening anyway because of their value system worldview. And our number one goal has to be to preserve the neoliberal order, a free and open Indo-Pacific. And that means we go with our allies and partners like India first. Somewhere lower on the pecking order of interests, we need to think, but what can we do to avoid so much Sino-Russian alignment that it becomes so disruptive 
that it that it actually makes it harder for us to achieve our goal of a liberal international order. And I guess the answer, and it's a tricky one. Um, I, I, you know, this is one of those things where we need a couple million dollars in research funding, it seems to me. But it's very, very tricky. My guess is we look for projects with Russia. Obviously, the space station is a project. I would say North Korea should be a project. We could very usefully open a dialogue with the Russians, as we did during the Bush administration, to start detailing how we would dismantle North Korean nuclear weapons and dispose of them. It could be very technical. In a way, we need to empower Russia on some issues where we're not begging them, but where they can be helpful and where our interests overlap. Arms control should be one. When we go into New START, the Russians are resisting, as they did in our discussion with them, talking about China, but we should have arms control discussions that think about how do we get China in for the first time, the disciplines that Moscow and Washington have from time to time lived under. So those kind of special projects with technical expertise where our interests potentially overlap, but I just don't see a big play where we drop human rights and we drop our problems with Russia in, in, the, in the thought that somehow we'll wean them from China. That's not in the cards, and we'd be, we'd be foolish to think that that should be our strategy. No, absolutely. And I think that's what our piece suggests is that exactly right. The prioritization is the international liberal order, democracies, uh, international law and norms and rules. That's our priority. But that doesn't mean we have to close all the doors. And it's thinking about a more nuanced approach. Russia has some things to offer. Let's see if they can pursue those in productive channels. Right now, their activity is going into disruption. That's where they feel they are most productive. Uh, And so how can we help them recalibrate that productivity into something that suits their interests uh, in the long term as well as ours? I just don't know if the politics of the moment allow that to happen. As I said, this short-term need of showing an anti-Western block and preservation of great power dimension, simply just maybe a greater priority than that pragmatism. But we have to leave the door open and exactly right. That's why track twos and thoughtful conversations with Russian experts can help tease that out a little bit. And hopefully we can provide some thoughts and ideas for for governments to, to seize upon. But the politics of the moment make this extremely difficult. I just want to end on sort of future uh, Russia-Chinese military cooperation, you mentioned sort of this concern of coordination, uh, that there seems to be something more implicit about the probing and the testing and the stretching of U.S. capabilities in the region. You know, at the same time, I'm, I'm seeing Russia test and probe in the European theater as well. Is there a a point of coordination between Beijing and Moscow militarily in the Indo-Pacific region that would really be a profound challenge to to the U.S. and to capabilities? Or do you see this as just sort of they're thinking through uh, how coordination looks and they're just taking small steps? I just wondered if you have this, you know, what keeps you up at night moment about their military engagement? Well, we can see indications of how much Moscow and Beijing are aligning their military efforts to disrupt our forward presence in our alliances and and the capabilities or the posture of Japan and Korea. So, for example, a few years ago, a Russian surface action group returned from a multilateral exercise in Southeast Asia and deliberately went through the contiguous waters around the Senkakus, which they do. But whenever they do that, the Japanese Navy, the MSDF, which trails them, goes through too. And uh, Japan and China generally just send Coast Guards in, not Navy. So when the Japanese Navy went in, the Chinese PLA Navy went right in after them. And it was so quick. And so, and the Chinese ships were so well positioned that 
um, the circumstantial evidence was this was a play being run jointly. Um, and there are other examples. And there are, of course, specific joint exercises like the bomber exercises. Russia's Air Force moves in the north are often, you know, curiously timed to Chinese exercises in the south or even circumnavigation of Japan. And then, of course, there are still some weapon systems, especially fighter craft engine, surface-to-air missiles, where the Russians have a lot of technology the Chinese need. So I think the nightmare scenario, and we're not there yet, would be that this coordination, some technology and weapon sales uh, and transfer, that this moves to um, much more deliberate efforts to disrupt our posture and our, and our military readiness with Japan, maybe leads to, in the worst case scenario, uh, surface-to-air missile sales to North Korea, for example, the way we've seen with Iran and unfortunately India, maybe even more collaboration than we see on hypersonic weapons and things meant to defeat U.S. and Japanese and now Australian missile defenses. That's possible. That's the kind of disruptive threat and posture that we want to avoid if we can. And the way to do it is not, as I said, to drop human rights and suddenly hug Russia from Washington, but let Japan and India and Europe and others play some of that game to impose a cost on Russia if they go that far. And of course, the other thing to keep in mind is the U.S. has a security commitment to Japan and Korea and Australia and the Taiwan Relations Act with Taiwan. And we have had since Reagan a policy of wanting India to um, be able to secure the Indian Ocean, even though we don't have a security commitment. But we have to keep in mind, Russia has absolutely no stake in the Taiwan problem. They do not want to be pulled into a military confrontation by China over Taiwan. And and so there's no Article 4, Article 5 in this relationship. It's very unlikely there will be. So they don't want to be entrapped in each other's military conflicts. That's for sure. So that will limit to some extent what they do. But the scenarios I described, those would be disruptive and expensive for us to counter. I don't think we hug Russia to avoid it and give up on human rights, but I think we play a broader diplomatic game with our allies and partners to impose costs on them if they decide they want to go with team China, Iran, Myanmar. Those are really important words of advice. And again, it's it just continues to underscore the importance of an allied-centric approach to these issues that we can uh, actually achieve our goals, but allowing our allies to find that 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 middle ground. Mike, this has been an extraordinary conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you first for being part of that really important trilateral dialogue that we had with our colleagues from Memo and JIIA. Um, it's been a longstanding dialogue. I didn't know it went back that far uh, to the size day. So thank you for that history as well. But it speaks to the importance of track two and, and how we keep these conversations going. This is an amazing part of the, of the world where allies, competitors, uh, really huge challenges to U.S. national security are, and uh, we're thoughtful people like you need to help us think through them all. So thank you so much. Look look out for a forthcoming commentary from our two respective programs, thinking about how a, a more nuanced approach uh, to the Quad and the Sino-Russian block is coming your way soon. But Meg, thanks again so much for being with us today for Russian Roulette. Thank you, Heather. That's it for our show today. Please check the show notes for a link to Mike Green's bio and a link to his podcast, Asia Chessboard, which explores the historic context and inside decision-making process on major geopolitical developments from the Himalayas to the South China Sea. 
For those of you who haven't already, please consider subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or leaving us a rating and a review. If you are not an iTunes user, you can stream the podcast on Spotify. Finally, I'd like to take the time to thank the Carnegie Corporation of New York for funding both our trilateral conversation as well uh, as supporting uh, the written product that came out of it. Uh, we are so grateful to our producer and program manager, Oksana Gabudulina, and the entire CSIS external relations team. Thanks for listening. 